only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. We've got some good stuff for you. Uh, We're really looking forward to this conversation with John Dunn, a former miner from the UK. But first, we've got some stuff to talk about uh, domestic workers. Right, Adam? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's pull this graphic up here. I wanted you guys to see this. Well, never mind on that. Uh, so anyway, uh, yes, I wanted to talk uh, just for a couple minutes about domestic workers because the National Domestic Workers Alliance has been pushing for a National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, uh, which would lift up and protect the domestic workers, most of whom are women of color, who care for our homes and our families. Celeste Faison, director of campaigns for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, stated that, quote, all over the country, domestic workers are exploited. Sometimes it's illegal, but just as often it's legal because domestic workers have no federal sexual harassment, minimum wage, or maximum work week protections, end quote. Uh, so these historic, these historic exclusions represent one of the deficits of the New Deal era and are ongoing legacies of patriarchy and white supremacy. Again, these are primarily women of color who fill these roles, working in people's homes, caring for people's elders. Uh, Thankfully, Faison shared that they want a critical milestone in their campaign for this Bill of Rights. Uh, The House of Representatives Education and Labor Committee held a hearing last month for the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. They're continuing to push for Congress to pass this legislation while working with states and cities to pass their own. I recommend checking out domesticworker.org where you can find out more about the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, get plugged into the campaign, and support their actions. A lot of folks are not familiar uh, with those exclusions that were carved out back during the 1930s and how our dear sisters who work domestically in folks' homes, caring for people's elders, how they do not share the same protections that we have under American labor law, uh, which, as we discuss all the time on this show, is pretty crappy to begin with. Uh, So the fact that they don't even have those uh, really is a testament to the type of exploitation they they frequently experience. So check it out, domesticworker.org. Absolutely. Uh, we got a text. Like I said, you can text us or leave us a voicemail anytime throughout the week, and we might answer your question or read it or play the voicemail on the next program. Um, and we got a text last week from a listener said, Hey, friends, Jack from New Jersey checking in. I'm currently training to move out of my current job to one as an actuary uh, so I can move out of my tiny, cramped apartment but conflicted about giving myself to the health insurance industry. Any advice on industries with union density that need math slash statistics skills? And uh, it's funny, somebody actually, I wonder if it's the same person. It wouldn't surprise me because, this, you know, if, if you listen to us, you're likely going to know about Labor Notes and Jonah Furman. Uh, but Jonah Furman <clears throat> got a very similar question in his, like, these folks on Twitter, they're having, like, these uh, ask me an anonymous question or something. Got a very similar question about that. Um 
are are there any industries with high union density where I can use you know actuarial skills, accounting? I think it was accounting was was what he said, and um, and Jonah said uh, yes, actually there are lots of public sector, municipal, and state government jobs, especially in the Northeast, that are going to be represented by AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And uh, and and those are, especially up in the Northeast, they're going to have very high union density, and uh, that would be a really great place to get plugged in, and AFSCME could always use more labor militants. So, um, so that is something to think about. Yeah. Also, um, you know, unions are always needing, you know, there, there's, uh, depending on if you're willing to move, you know, you might could, you might could be an accountant for a union. Uh, that's something that you could do. Um, and you know, if you're really dead set on doing stuff, uh, with math statistics skills, I really think that the public sector is going to be your best bet. Um, and you'd be able to get involved with your union. Um, alternatively though, if, if you are looking for, for other stuff that might not pay as much, you know, salting at Starbucks or Amazon would be a great use of your time. Uh, even though, you know, you wouldn't get paid as much, uh, which is, you know, the reason that, <laughs> the, right. the reason that that kind of work is important. Well, and you know, if we get it, you're, you're taking a job so that you can, Move out of a tiny hey, apartment. No, yeah, I don't. Don't feel bad about it. Right. I'm not salting at Amazon. So uh, I'm not salting at Starbucks. And whatever your new job may be, even if it is working for an evil health insurance corporation, assuming you are in fact an employee and not a supervisor, you can organize there, right? right. That's always that's always an option as well. Um, but there there are always ways to contribute your skills. I think the movement needs people of all types with all talents, uh, mm-hmm. and there is a place for you. And even if it's uh, local organizations that you could volunteer with who maybe right. need some help right. doing statistics, uh, crunching some numbers, you know. Unfortunately, I know it's not sexy, but a lot of organizing involves Excel spreadsheets. Yep. So uh, folks with those kind of skills are always in need. Uh, for activist causes and organizing campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. Very good question. And I, I, it's something uh, something I need to look into a little bit more, ponder on. Um, we got a YouTube comment, and occasionally we will uh, reply to those if, if we think that it's, it's worth it. Um, and this one is a comment on a very old video, actually, um, a, a, a video that we did with current NLRB press secretary back when she was the president of the nonprofit employees union for IFPTE, Kayla Blado. Um, we were talking to her and we got a question about then. What about your lazy coworker, right? And so this person uh, commented on the video and asked us to, to talk more in depth about it. And so, you know, whatever, I'm happy to. And it's been a couple of years since we've talked about this specific thing, um, at least directly. Uh, and, and so this comment says, 
I think you should speak on what your union can do when a coworker is being lazy and manipulative in the workplace. What can your union do when a coworker is hiding behind the union? Can your union help you put an end to such behaviors from individuals who take advantage of the union's protection? Some coworkers know unions will fight for their job even though they lack professionalism, have poor attitude in the workplace, are lazy and manipulative. This would be extremely helpful knowledge for those of us facing issues of this nature with coworkers who abuse union jobs. Um, so, Adam, you actually had we, – we talked about this last week um, off the air because we were um, you know we were looking at this comment and, right. and kind of thinking about it and, um, and and you mentioned something about like y'all had a um, in your union you had something like a, a a pledge that you would take yeah I mean seeing this this comment I will say that that's an important issue and that's something that uh, those of us in the labor movement do have to confront from time to time uh, of course <clears throat> we all know there's tropes out there about the lazy mm-hmm. union worker. Uh, but sometimes tropes happen in real life, right. um, and no matter where you work, whether it's union or non-union, chances are you're going to run into a coworker who is, uh, you know, maybe not taking the job as serious as you are. But the first thing that came to my mind was a code of conduct that we had in my the last union I belonged to. I spent over five years as a member of the National Staff Organization (NSO). And we did have a NSO union members code of conduct. And I'm going to kind of refer to that to start off this conversation because I think it's a good way to ground the conversation. And this is something that we would all agree to abide by, starting with I will not criticize any union colleague except to the individual directly. If any union colleague is being criticized in my presence, I will confront the criticism and ask that it stop. I will not participate in any conversation with management that criticizes or negatively speculates about any union colleague. I will settle my differences with union colleagues within the union. I will engage in debate, offer others every opportunity for debate and respect minority viewpoints, and I will observe and support the majority mandate of my union. I will avoid actions that undermine the bargaining and contract rights of other unions in the workplace. And I will not perform the work of a worker who is off the job because he or she is taking a stand for the rights of workers to fair treatment and decent working conditions. So to unpack that for a sec, I think it all starts with talking to the person in question. You've got a coworker that you believe is being lazy, being manipulative, and trying to kind of uh, use the union as a shield to get away with it. My first bit of advice is go speak to that person directly. Um, and Jacob, you even mentioned there's there's biblical uh, grounding there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this isn't just something you know that maybe a unionist would recommend. Uh, your preacher may recommend the same thing. Right. Go straight to the source. And yeah, well, and that's, go ahead. and go ahead. well, and on on the the biblical nature of it, you know, the people who are going to be, and it is an it's a this is an important issue in that occasionally it will happen and so let's address it as if the question is being asked in good faith but like you said it is also a trope and is used in not good faith ways it is used as a way to say that workers don't deserve rights um and and that your boss should have unilateral authority to fire you and you know uh, uh to discipline you 
And whatever, whether whether or not we think that bosses should exist in the way that they do, the fact is that they do exist in the way that they do. And so their role would be to discipline workers and discipline workers in line with the law and the contract. And so there's no reason for us to be doing <laughs> their job for them, right? And, and you know, people talk about the union protecting lazy coworkers. All that is is the union enforcing the contract. Right. Right? So so if if there is a lazy coworker or if there is a coworker who is um legitimately damaging to the employer uh in 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 a business sense, it is the job of management to pursue discipline and pursue discipline in line with the contract that they agreed to. And so if they pursue discipline out of line with that contract, then it is the union's duty to enforce the contract, right? It's the union's duty to enforce the contract. And if, if, if it is such that a person who is legitimately bad at their job or per- perhaps damaging to the company in a business, as far as the business is concerned, is protected by the contract. Whose fault is that? It's the fault of management for not following the contract and the necessary disciplinary procedures. Because no business is going to agree to a contract that does not allow them to get rid of bad employees. So, if bad employees are sticking around or are not improving, that's the fault of management. Not the union. And it's important to lay that out there. But uh, speaking of the biblical thing, you know, this is often talked about by people who are going to bring this up are often going to be like right wing Christians, people who consider themselves Christians as like a like a, you know, whatever Mike Pence would say, I'm a Christian, a conservative and then a Republican. They conceive of themselves as Christians and Christians first, even before they're conservative. Right. And uh, but but they've kind of been inculcated in in this individualism and work ethic and, and, and whatever. And there's nothing wrong with the work ethic. A work ethic is good and important. But they're going to be the ones oftentimes who are going to say unions make employees lazy or whatever. So what does the Bible say? That's a good question. What does the Bible say when you maybe as a worker or as, as somebody have an issue with somebody. And so in Matthew, they're, they're asking this question as it relates to uh, members of the church, right? And so it's obviously they're, they're not exactly talking about what do you do in workplace situations, but I think there's, an, there's a, you know, some, some teachings that we can pull out of that. Um, Matthew says, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's the first thing that you do. And I actually had somebody who has said this to me, who has said this about unions make people lazy, unions are bad, blah, blah, blah. I actually had them talk to me about a situation where they were offended by their coworker and went and told the boss first Mm-mm. before they told their coworker. And it was over some really silly issue, like the person was cussing too much, right? And they went and said... That to the boss. Why? Why? Why would you do that? Why would you want to bring in the threat? Because why would you tell the boss? The bo- because because there's this threat of discipline and potentially even termination when you get the boss involved. Why would right. you do that? Why Don't would be you a not? Snitch. Yeah. Why would you not just tell the, if if it's if it is so important to you 
Like, if it is actually offensive to you to hear dirty words, then be an adult and tell the person, right? Tell the person. Yeah, I, and th- there's a reason why I think that's referenced in Scripture, and I think there's a reason why it was the first thing in, in my old union's code of conduct, because it, it works. It's mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Uh, you should not go run the management. Uh, to me, that should be reserved for like the absolute last step of a multi-step right. process or like a complete emergency where like you're about to get run over right. by a forklift and you right. have to yell stop, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe management's standing there. Okay, that's fair. Uh, but generally speaking, go di- confront the person directly. And I'll, yeah. I'll share you know, a personal experience with that. Um, in in my old local, uh, there were some rumors going around about one of our leaders that supposedly she was angling for a promotion. Uh, that would have put her in management. Well, maybe we shouldn't trust her. She's trying to get into management, blah, blah, blah. And after the second or third person threw that rumor out to me, you know, I asked, well, have y'all talked to her about this? Oh, well, no, no, no. I said, okay. So my next phone call was to her. Right. The person who's, who's being rumored about. And I said, hey, I just want you to know I've had more than one person say this to me, and I'm, I'm calling you not to spread a rumor but to address it. Mm-hmm. They said you're trying to get into management. We can't trust you. We shouldn't have you in your leadership. Uh, and she cleared it up for me. She had not applied for the position, had no intention of applying for the position. Uh, It was just basically some assumptions were made uh, that then got a life of their own, as rumors tend to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'll tell you what, she respected the hell out of me for being willing to call her directly and ask her because I was the only person who had the guts to do that. And once she had that conversation with me of course i was able to clear up the rumor but more importantly like she had more respect for me and our relationship really Mm -hmm. strengthened at that point because she knew i was going to be up front with her uh if something was being talked about within the union i wasn't going to pull punches i would be willing to have Mm -hmm. a tough awkward conversation and vice versa and uh that wasn't the only tough awkward conversation i had like that right but um I would say that most of the time folks will respect you for being willing to do that because I'd much rather you come to me and, and, and chew me out to my face and call me every name in the book to my face than run around behind the scenes. Right. Either to my brothers and sisters in the union or, God forbid, to people in management. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, the and, first step. And, and, and even if that person, you know, this assume th- this is a legitimately like manipulative, lazy person. Right. Okay, maybe they're not going to respect you for being direct. Right. But anyone else who has to get involved here uh, mm-hmm. will respect you for that. And frankly, it's going to be one of the first things they ask because I would say if you can't resolve it one on one, that's when you can bring the union into it to try to solve it within the union. Maybe right. That. Maybe your steward facilitates a conversation. Your local president facilitates a conversation. Uh, maybe it's something that rises to the level that you actually need to bring it up at a union meeting. Right. And that's what, you know, that's basically what the Bible prescribes. It says, okay, look, if you it, it, go and tell him his fault, 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, and that's exactly what happened with you and 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 your uh, the the union member that you had questions about, or that other people had questions about. Your r- relationship was strengthened there. Right. But if he does not listen, which will happen sometimes, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here you're bringing in more people, maybe somebody that this person respects. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And that's maybe when we're starting to talk about union leadership. And then if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be as to you as a Gentile. And maybe at that point we're talking about... You know, they're no longer a brother. We're going to management, something like that. That's that potentially. You know, if it's something that, yeah, is putting people at risk, um, putting people's safety at risk, you know, obviously that's something to be taken seriously. You know, there's degrees of this. Someone who kind of slacks off a little bit or is occasionally late versus someone, yeah, who legitimately puts the entire operation at risk or is doing harm to others. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think. I think it's interesting that, you know, the Union Code of Conduct and, and, and the Bible. Is, <laughs> yeah, so there's well. so many parallels there. It really it really is interesting. And, and I, I uh, you know, and I and, and this is not to say, obviously, you know, I don't I, I don't think that it, regular listeners are going to think that we're like a religious show or anything. But but both of us have sort of a religious background. And so it's something that I that I thought about that came out to me when I read this qu- question. And so just to repeat the question. The question is basically, you should speak on what your union can do when a coworker is being lazy and manipulative in the workplace. Well, the first thing is for you. Like if this is something they're being lazy and they're being manipulative and it's bothering you and you feel like it's affecting your ability to work, then you should presumably you're an adult, right? Presum- you know, you're in a workplace, presumably you're an adult. Talk to them. Be an adult, right? Go and talk to them. Tell them your issues. Do it, and don't be a jerk about it, right? Do it in a in a brotherly way, in a sisterly, in a comradely way, right? Talk to them. If that doesn't work, bring in some other of your coworkers, some other comrades, some other union members. Talk to them about that. If that doesn't work, go to your local union. Say, look, I, I really need this is this is really affecting my ability to work. Can we have can, you know, is there anything that we can do? And then if that doesn't work and it's something that is safety related or, or like, you know, there's a real danger, then maybe maybe you can talk to right. your union. Otherwise, let management do management's right. job. And that's something that I was going to mention earlier. You brought this up. Uh, and I, I've heard it a lot in the context of teachers, obviously, with the work I've done, but uh, where people complain, oh, well, you know, you've got this tenured teacher who's lazy and doesn't do anything for the kids, and but they just can't get rid of them. You know, they're, they're tenured. Bull. That is right. complete BS. Yeah. Um, if you show me a lazy employee or a bad employee who supposedly cannot be gotten rid of because of their due process rights or tenure rights, I'm going to show you a member of management who's even lazier and more incompetent exactly. and worse at their job. Right. Because if someone's legitimately bad at their job, they're violating policy, they're doing things that put people at risk or at harm. Uh, it shouldn't be hard to document that. It shouldn't be hard to put a corrective uh, action plan in place. These things are not that hard. Uh, so if you have, you know, sticking with the example of teacher, if you have a terrible teacher who year after year is not really teaching the kids anything and they're, they're, they're a joke, 
Exactly. That is not, at a certain point, that is on the principal, the superintendent, the HR director. Uh, and I just saw a comment in the chat, management's always lazier than the employees. Yeah. Bingo. Right. There you go. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, look, like I said, so a lot of times this is this is really just, you know, this tr- this is just put out there not in good faith often, right. sometimes by management but right. you know there are people that that do have you know this actual worry if and so you know we want to address it in good faith right, yeah for and people that are going through a union campaign that maybe they've had maybe somebody has put this in their mind in bad faith but now they as a worker have this concern in good faith and so yeah. we want to address it in bad faith but we also do want to point out that a lot of times when we're talking about oh unions make people lazy it's bs and you know and right. and, and, and also but, Think you know, it, like you said, it's something to take into consideration. And when you have these issues pop up, I think that's also a way of framing it is like, look, brother, you're making us look bad. Right. You know, it's hard enough to do our jobs. It's hard enough to maintain our union uh, and try to fight for the kind of pay and benefits we deserve. We can't have you out here slacking off, making us all look bad. Yeah. And, and we don't want to waste our dues dollars having to constantly defend you because you're an idiot. So let's get it together. Maybe not call him an idiot, but you know, <laughs> not the first conversation, at least. But yeah, so that's a it's a it's a interesting interesting discussion. Have we got John in the Zoom? I believe so. Let's double check here. Yes, let's unmute John. All right, awesome. So this is a this is a conversation that's that's been a, a little while in the making. Um, last year we got an email from a John Dunn in the UK uh, who was part of the big coal miner strike over there in the 80s, sending solidarity to the folks down in Brookwood. Um, and I, I thought, you know, we've got to get him on the show sometime for sure. And we've finally done it. So uh, John, many thanks, many thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, all the way from across the pond. It's great, uh, and uh, can I congratulate you on on a great show? Uh, it, it's inspiring to hear the news of unionisation over there uh, because we get we get none of this news. The Alabama strikers have had no coverage whatsoever, uh, and it was searching for them that I came across yourselves, and I've tuned in. Uh, usually on YouTube later because of the time difference, and I really enjoy the show. Well done. Well, I appreciate it, and that really means that really means a lot coming from I. You know, there are few, or there there is I, I don't I, I don't ever get any praise uh, that makes me feel better than when it comes from uh, from working folks, and particularly people that have been active in their unions. Uh, uh, and Adam, I don't know if I, I haven't told you this yet, but, uh, Obernauer, Adam Obernauer from the RWDSU, he was at the RW, uh, he's, he was at the APWU convention last week and said somebody recognized his hat, his, uh, his, uh, our logo cap and said, Oh, Hey, you know, I I like those guys. That's pretty cool. John. Yeah. It really means a lot. Especially coming from you and 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 hearing it from folks who uh, are from far away, but ultimately our struggles are connected, and, and I think that's absolutely uh, mm-hmm. that's that's what I love. So yeah, thank you for for being here, and, and thank you for your praise. Yeah. So let's start with some some personal history uh, uh, for you. Uh, you know, everybody knows that mining is a really hard job. Uh, so what got you into the industry? 
It's uh, a bit of a, a long uh, story, but uh, <laughs> shall we say I was a child of the 60s and I went to uh, uh, what we call a grammar school, which is a selective school. You have to wear uniforms, caps, badges. Some of the teachers wore gowns. I got caned for not having uh, uh, a badge on my blazer wow. at one time. Uh, and... Being the 60s, I was reading about Che Guevara, who'd just been killed in Bolivia, reading things, getting interested, inspired by the general strike in uh, in France. Uh, and I was a bit of a, a rebel. I grew my hair. Uh, I started going to school in jeans. And so uh, they what they said was they took me off the register. Uh, because being a grammar school, they didn't look, want to look bad by expelling people, which meant uh, I had to find a job. So I walked out of school and got a job on a building site as a labourer. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I found that uh, as a 17-year-old lad, a bit of a struggle chopping the ends of my fingers off with uh, bricks and heavy things. So... I moved around, had a few jobs, and then in the end I got uh, a job in an engineering firm. Uh, and I was telling my dad, I come from a long family of miners, my father, my grandfather, their ancestors, were all all in mining. Uh, and I, I told him what this job involved. It was called a hot press. Uh, you're working in hot temperatures, working with hot oil. And my dad just said, you're not doing that. Uh, I know somebody at Glatwell Pit, uh, and he rang up uh, and got me a job. And that's uh, how I started at, uh, uh, in uh, 1970 at the age of 18. So what uh, what did your day as a miner look like? Like what, what job did you have in the mines? Or did you did you have several different jobs in the mines? Well, I was when I started. I was because I, I got uh, educational qualifications. We thought I was a, a, a ripe for candidate to to be streamlined into management. But uh, I soon persuaded them otherwise of that. <laughs> uh, I I didn't get trained to to work on coalface because uh, uh, I'm a severe asthmatic. So I did a number of jobs underground and in 19 uh, in 1972 we had our first national miners strike for a living wage uh, I sent me I spent my 20th birthday actually on the picket line in the snow uh, and uh, that sort of schooled me in, and I got very active in the trade union served as a time as a, a branch official uh, at that point, and then in 1976, they announced its closure, and I led the fight to try and keep it open, which unfortunately we lost. And that came with that came my first experience of what happens to militant trade unions at the time. No other pit wanted to accept me uh, because of that trade union record. So in the end. I ended up at my last pit called Markham, and they put me in the safety department doing dust monitoring and dust control, thinking 
that uh, that would keep me out of arm's way. It wasn't by any means the best paid job in the pit, but what it did allow me was to go to every area of the pit. So I got quite well known as a union activist. It was by no means uh, a, uh, a militant pit, uh, but, uh, you know, I managed to become, again, a, a branch official from time to time uh, in in that uh, NUM branch. And one of the reasons about the safety department, I should say, that our pits, because of the strength of the NUM, were the safest, most advanced pits in the world. And so we all had a specialist safety department that dealt with dust, ventilation, uh, general safety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, uh, just just for, just for the audience, sorry? the. Just for the audience, the NUM is the National Union of Miners. That's uh, yeah, that was the miners sorry, union I, I slipped okay. into these local abbreviations. <laughs> sorry, you might you might need uh, translation with some of the terms I use. <laughs> no worries, no worries at all. So you you know you mentioned that you're talking about the the NUM and and y'all had really safe mines. The uh, is it correct that the mines in the UK were nationalized? Yes, they were nationalised in 1948 under the uh, Labour government. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, uh, they were, we weren't given workers' control. Uh, it was very much the same management ethos as uh, had, uh, had been under private uh, mine owners. But what it did result was a strong national union. Uh, before that, we've always been a fe- we were always a federated union. Uh, but before that, you literally had uh, you know local uh, sections dealing with their own problems. Right, right. So the the union nationalisation was a uh, kind of brought all those federated locals together into the NUM, and I'm interested. Um, about some of the day-to-day, you know, before uh, b- before the, the big strike and, and ultimately the closures of, of all or most of the mines in the UK, I'm interested in what the day-to-day was like because we're really familiar as as union members and as, as union activists and, and, you know, branch officials, like you would say, we've both been elected officers of our unions. Um, you know, we're pretty familiar with uh, private and public sector workings and how we bargain contracts and how we deal with grievances and, and the different approaches and some of the debates. Uh, but I'm, I'm very, very unfamiliar with, uh, you know, the, the terrain and, and, and over in the UK. So I'm, I'm interested in, in some of that day to day stuff, you know, not from a job perspective, but more in the vein of, vein of, of how did you as miners, um, as union miners interface with the company, like workplace issues, how did you bargain contracts, stuff like that? Well, all uh, negotiations were done at national level. We had national uh, agreements. We had what was known as the, the uh, when mechanization was being bought in wholesale, uh, we had the national power loaning agreement that, uh, that determine wages nationally, especially for, for face workers, that made sure that people in less productive pits got the same wage because production can depend on a number of things, conditions, height of the coal face, 
etc etc so uh, every miner in every pit was on the same grade for it for the job that they did and so and what... locally we negotiate you know you'd, you'd have disputes from time to time we had full-time branch secretaries uh, who would do negotiations on behalf of management because from time to time uh, local disputes w would spring up uh, and they tended to get resolved very quickly, again because of the strength of our union. We, it was called a closed shop, which meant that you had to join the union when you signed on for employment uh, in the mines. Uh, so what, what about when... Uh, local management officials would violate the contract, or maybe maybe that didn't even happen. But here in the states, we'll get a lot of times, uh, even where you've got a union contract. We just talked about a story um, earlier in the show. NBC News, uh, their workers are unionized, and management unilaterally issued salary reductions. And that was two years ago, and just recently they won back pay uh, in the amount of $200,000. And so that kind of speaks to maybe some of the ineffectiveness of, of the legal system and, and maybe even per perhaps of the union, but it, two years later... NBC is having to write a check for $200,000 because the bosses and the executives violated the contract. What happened when uh, bosses violated the contract? Well, uh, they couldn't because of the national agreements. But what <laughs> they sometimes do would be pushing things too hard, uh, insisting uh, uh, perhaps that working conditions were a little bit different. So we literally uh, would either go on strike for a day or until it was resolved, or we would do what we did a, a city in what we called the pit bottom and not leave to go to the uh, to the workings. So things got resolved. But if you had a problem, <coughs> sorry, you just went to the to your union official who talked to management uh, and sort it out. So did it was incredible. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds pretty incredible. Did your contracts have no strike clauses, or or could no, you strike? No, it? no, no, no. The union up until nineteen seventy one, seventy two uh, was a very moderate union. We accepted. Uh, my dad used to refer to them as uh, a packet of fag risers, where you got a few. Uh, you know, very little increase, uh, and you, you very much had collaboration between the union officials at national level uh, and uh, and the employer. So that all changed with a new mood of militancy and uh, and the rank and left wing rank and file members getting organised, uh, and it culminated in. Uh, in the election of, of Arthur Scargill as an agent for the Yorkshire region, who then later went on to become not just our leader, but the best trade union leader this country's ever seen. So moving then into the strike, um, what were the what what is the time frame? I know that it happened in the eighties, but what is the time frame that we're talking about specific, more specifically, and what triggered it? What were some of the issues? It well, uh, I'll just go back a little bit. In okay. nineteen seventy four, we actually went on strike uh, for more wages. Uh, that was our second ever national. We actually bought down a government. 
We actually brought down a Conservative government uh, who never forgave us for that. Uh, and, he, and a few years later, they commissioned what they called, it was top secret, the Ridley Report. A so cabinet just, minister. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. Just for a moment, uh, could you tell our listeners what it means to bring down a government in, in the UK? Well, we had a Conservative government and uh, we went on uh, a six-week strike, in which time... Uh, we picketed power stations, uh, uh, and we were having power outages. The the government was having to ration electricity, so you, and people were being put on a three day week because most energy was supplied by coal. So eventually, the Prime Minister Edward Heath at the time decided, thinking he could win handsomely. Uh, to call an election under the slogan of who runs the country and he lost so <laughs> we proved that the unions ran the country unfortunately the Labour Party that uh, represented it is a bit more like until Jeremy Corbyn came along which is a different story a bit might like your modern day Democrats who are more uh, corporate and establishment inclined. So, yeah, we bought down the government. And as I say, they never forgave us and commissioned a report by Nicholas Ridley, a, a cabinet minister, deliberately to break, in particular, our union. <coughs> and so they were waiting for us. And we, uh, in, 19, in uh, 1981, they announced, uh, they threatened a series of big closures and a lot of unofficial strikes backed off. So they weren't quite ready. So in 1984, they actually provoked a strike. Before that, just before that, we'd had a bonus scheme imposed on us, an area bonus scheme that meant that the more coal uh, you produce, the higher your wages were. Uh, we'd campaigned against it, we'd defeated it in a, in a ballot, but certain areas, certain right-wing controlled areas broke away and we ended up with that, which was literally put us on a suicide mission because obviously people chased the boners, we increased coal stocks and enabled the government to build up reserves for a strike. And in uh, the government appointed a, a fella from over your way, Ian McGregor, who had a, a, a history of uh, taking on trade unions. I, I believe he'd done it uh, in companies in the US. And he, uh, he, he later did it in Britain in the steelworks. He smashed the union and destroyed that industry. And he was set on by Margaret Thatcher's government to take us on. So they, they were ready and they provoked this strike by announcing against all national agreements, we actually had agreements about pit closures that went through a negotiation procedure. You, you looked at whether working conditions made it impossible to mine, whether coal was exhausted, etc., etc. They broke that agreement and announced 20 pit closures uh, with five to shut immediately. 
uh, within a week. And so miners in a Yorkshire pit called Cortonwood, which was the first to close, immediately walked out. This was in March 1984. Picketed other pits in Yorkshire, asking in true, uh, you know, workers' tradition for solidarity. And one by one, pits came out throughout Yorkshire, and then they spread the strike into other areas. And a few days later, we in Derbyshire were picketed out. Uh, and the strike at first was relatively solid. So, uh, we, uh, sorry, but we we uh, we had an area in Nottinghamshire that was traditionally uh, more moderate that had uh, uh, a, a, a section that that didn't want to strike. So, eventually, they broke the strike and later formed a breakaway union, uh, the Union of Democratic Miners. Uh, so yeah, the, the 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 battleground was set. I don't know if that's a little bit too scattered for you to to take in. But no, 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 not at all. So the the main issue was the main issue was over the 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 closures of of the of the pits. Yeah, then. yeah. Arthur Scargill was then our national president. Warned that it wasn't twenty pits. Uh, it was going to be seventy. And then eventually they would destroy the entire industry, which we now have done. There's not a working pit left in, in Britain. Uh, and as I say, that strike spread. Uh, and we were picking it out. And immediately the media onslaught began. You know, we'd not had a ballot. We'd actually in true solidarity. When pickets came to our pit, we walked to our local miners' welfare, which was our social club, uh, and we had a show of hands to support the strike, the most democratic way uh, you can vote. And solidly, we, we walked out on strike. And so I was on strike for a few days, less than one whole year. And so the uh, was was there ever, like, did it did it spread kind of from local to local or um, uh, the whole time and eventually get national? Or was there kind of a certain tipping point when Scargill, the leader of the union, issued uh, issued a nationwide proclamation for a strike? Or, or did it, no, did no, it go it one by one? No, never anything. <coughs> Arthur, uh, the NUM was a very democratic union. Uh, and Arthur, as president, didn't even actually have a vote on the national executive. He just had the casting vote and in times of a tie. But what happened is, you rightly say, it spread from, we didn't call them locals, we called them branches, spread from branch to branch to branch, and eventually it was a national strike. And then uh, later in the, uh, a few weeks into the strike, uh, there was a national conference of delegates from every mine, every area executive that made the strike official. So yes, it became an official national strike. And so I'm I'm interested in it, you know you mentioned the media onslaught. I, I I'm interested in in the response to the strike from the public and the media and the government. Um and and I. And, and particularly in light of the UK media's response to the RMT strike, which I want to get your take on uh, a little bit later, um, because it 
fascinating to me, it seems like. But but what was the response to the strike as, as all of this is happening from everybody? Well, we got tremendous rank and file support. Unfortunately, uh, we were let down by the Trade Union Congress, which is the national body that supposedly coordinates trade unions. We were let by, down by the official leadership of the then Labour Party, but at rank and file, we had tremendous support. We had solidarity strikes. The dockers came out uh, because they'd been instructed to to unload coal at docks, uh, uh, and then eventually they were bought off. The government wanted to make sure we were isolated, but uh, fantastic. Uh, support. When you imagine keeping a national strike of 160,000 people going for a year, just the sheer logistics of making sure people didn't starve, of uh, showing solidarity, tremendous rank and file support, and some major trade unions. Uh, what happened uh, during that strike is the government sequestrated our union funds. We tried to hide them, uh, but uh, uh, unbeknown to us at the time, they had a, a Secret Service spy high up working for the union, and so they quickly traced that money. As I say, they were very organised and froze all our assets. So the union, if they wanted to, they couldn't even order paper clips without permission from uh, from the government. So they were trying to starve us back uh, literally from day one. We were denied social security benefits for, for, for strikers. Uh, we depended on little bits of strike pay that we raised and donations from all over uh, the, the country. Uh, the media onslaught never seen anything like it. Uh, they demonised Scargill. Uh, actually, there was a, a photograph of him uh, addressing a rally uh, at, uh, in Nottinghamshire in the strike where he got a real ovation as he came on and he lifted his arms up like that to tell the crowd to sit down. They photoshopped one arm out to show him giving a Nazi salute uh, uh, with the headline, Mein Führer, my oh M-I-N-E. Uh, and uh, we had strong print unions in those days. They uh, refused to print it after the first edition went out and eventually Rupert Murdoch... Uh, uh, took his revenge on them a few years later. But that's the sort of solidarity we had. But Scargill was absolutely demonised. For him to show the strength, the character to stand up to it, uh, I don't know how he did it. It were, You know, he had, he had people uh, camped in his, press reporters, camped in uh, his, his garden, surrounding his house, uh, uh, harassing his daughter, harassing his wife, mm. everything. Uh, and, and that continued even after the strike. You mentioned... It still uh, is demonised to this day. Mm, right. And they what? try to portray it. Uh, they always say 
that Scargill called the strike. No, mm. all he did was endorse the strike that was already taking place. And they like to make it out as a battle between uh, Arthur Scargill uh, and Margaret Thatcher uh, and make it all about the individuals rather than, than the cause that we were fighting. We only wanted a job. We weren't after wages. We weren't after changing conditions. We wanted to keep our jobs. And with our jobs, we lived in isolated communities in the main that depended upon that mine, right. you know, for for its livelihood. Mm. And so we said, if you destroy a mine, you destroy a community. And uh, that came true with a vengeance. So we were fighting for a lot more. And it eventually became a community campaign. The, our wives and partners, uh, sisters, daughters, joined us on the picket line, formed a, a group called Women Against Pit Closures. And when uh, we were taken off the picket line for one thing or another, they replaced us. Tremendous, tremendous uh, community support. I've never, you know, I get emotional just talking about it. It showed what could be. We had local, what we now call food banks. We had communal kitchens where we were fed, uh, fed a good meal every day. We had food parcels every week. Uh, it was. It showed what society actually could be like. Mm. Yes, and the the it really seems for some e- even more. I, I, it seems like such a common thread in minor strikes, specifically for some reason. It, it it I don't hear as much of this from other strikes. But you're talking about the uh, we've we've got what they're what they're calling a strike pantry in Brookwood uh, for mm-hmm. for the the folks the miners who are on strike in Alabama uh, that. Like you said, it, it allows them to take groceries for free. The union and uh, the union purchases groceries uh, with funds from the union and with donations from the community, from local grocery stores at wholesale, you know, discounted prices, and then gives it to the members for free uh, from their pantry. They have school supply drives. They've now had two. They've had to send their kids back to school after the summer twice now uh and they've had you know new clothes new backpacks uh new school supplies all for free for the union members um and the union in the last 500 days has spent more than 20 million dollars uh supporting these folks giving them strike benefits um and and the and there has been more than two million dollars raised from the community and donations and stuff um but the so that looks really familiar to me as I'm going down. You know, I've been to the strike pantry several times. I've I've been with them at their rallies and and seen how their community and and how their wives are supporting the strikers. And I've seen the documentaries from like Harlan County, USA. That looks like that's something that happened yeah, there yeah, too. And yeah. and you're saying that it happened over in the UK. And that that's really really interesting. The similarities there. Well, I think that comes from uh, the communities, living in close-knit communities. You know, you you work together in the main, you socialise together. Um, Probably most of your neighbours work uh, alongside you. And also underground, 
You're, mm -hmm. you're looking out for each other's back. You're all aware that it's a communal effort underground, and that's what I think uh, helps breed the solidarity. And you're literally fighting nature every day. So uh, it's, you know, it's an arduous job, even the lightest jobs down a mine uh, are totally uh, different to anything you'd experience anyway. So I think that, that comes out of that. And also the history of solidarity, having to fight back against rapacious owners, having to defend uh, each other at, at times of hardship, having to stand in solidarity, you know, when miners used to be locked out, the 26th strike, and, you know, we had lock, lockouts where the pits were just closed and miners couldn't work. Miners were evicted from the homes and lived in tents and, and communal shacks and things like that. So all that's part of a rich history of mining. I wanted to, um, while we're still talking about the strike, and, and I wanted to go back to something else that you said in another talk that you gave about the media's attack on y'all, and you gave it to um, something, a, a summer school in London, um, and, and I listened to this in, in preparation for, and, and, uh, in preparation for the interview, and, and you told a story about how the media over in the UK reversed... Um, footage trying to make and this is this is another again commonality in minor strikes where the media and the bosses try to make it seem like miners are these violent thugs right and yeah. we've seen that down here and and we saw it in in, in Harlan County during those strikes and and that's something that y'all saw over there where they there there was footage of miners what in actuality, defending themselves against attacks from you know people on from cops on horseback, but they reversed it. They showed <laughs> and they made it seem like the cops were the ones defending themselves. But actually, chronologically, what happened is the cops attacked and then the miners defended. Yeah, that happened at the uh, uh, the most violent. Well, it was a police riot at a coking plant. Uh, uh, Orgreave in, in South Yorkshire. Uh, and uh, the, we had an agreement with the steel workers uh, that uh, uh, we would supply limited amounts of coking uh, of coke to keep the furnaces uh, hot. Uh, so that was an agreement that we never broke. And then all of a sudden, the government ripped that up and decided to start shipping large amounts of coal by lorry. And I should say that the rail workers never moved a lump of coal for that whole year. They showed tremendous solidarity being sent home from work because they refused to work, etc., etc. We didn't even have to pick it up. They'd ring up and say, uh, can you put a sign up at at such and such a junction and will not cross it. Uh, and that, that was the solidarity that they showed. So they moved this, <coughs> sorry, they moved this uh, coke by, by lorry, by mass lorry movement. And it's important to stress that since uh, we have something called the 30-year rule over here, which after 30 years, cabinet papers that are, it's mainly secret, can be released. 
And our researchers have found that from early on in the strike, Margaret Thatcher micromanaged it, and the scribblings in the margins of her, in her own handwriting, where she's actually calculating the number of lorries needed to keep a, a, a steelworks open. She gave orders early on in the police to start getting physical with us, which they relished. This scene behind is a scene from Orgreave. It's a mounted police charge through a little little village, through Orgreave mm. village. She instructed the courts to convict us quicker, uh, and uh, I was an early casualty uh, of all that. But uh, at Orgreave, June the 18th, 1984, and I have to say, it's you know, there's so many details that have to explain the background of the strike. We have police roadblocks everywhere. If you looked like you were a minor, your car was stopped. We couldn't get onto motorways. We couldn't get out of our towns and villages at times. There was a ring of steel uh, put around mining areas. And if you were stopped... You were threatened with arrest if you refused to turn around and go back. We had mass uh, police uh, on picket lines, hundreds and hundreds. They, they created, just for this dispute, a national police force. Wow. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, before I go on to Orgreave, I'll just explain what happened to me because it's indicative of the violence that they were meeting out the frame-ups that we got. If that's okay, I'll just mention that yeah. as briefly as I can. Yeah, yeah, go okay? ahead. Yes, sir, uh, yes, absolutely. Early in the strike, about a month after I'd been on strike, I was picketing at a Nottinghamshire colliery called Cresswell. We had a very peaceful picket, uh, and I was walking back when I saw a lad about to be arrested, so I just grabbed him and shoved him back into the picket line and then I felt my head explode. Uh, I didn't know what was happening. I thought I had to fight to stay on my feet. And when I turned around, there's a policeman absolutely drenched in blood. His face was dripping with it. And that was my blood. It smashed the back of my head in with his truncheon, with his cough. Uh, and I was dragged away and never arrested, thrown into a police uh, wagon. Uh, and I was dripping blood everywhere uh, and uh, I made a complaint uh, and the, the uh, policeman in charge of the van I was in wanted to take me in we had we had ambulance and uh, uh, and the medical centers at every pit wanted to take me into the, the pit uh, to be to be looked at and I said I'm not going in there. These people have just crossed our picket line. I'm not being touched by a scam. And his words were, I hope you don't mind me swearing. His actual words were, well, you can fucking bleed to death then. Mm. And it was only the intervention of my late brother that uh, got me uh, taken urgently to hospital. Uh, I, uh, where I was, when I got there, I, I was surrounded by police and they persuaded the surgeon to stitch me up without anaesthetic. Oh, my God. Wow. I'll tell you, that hurts. Uh, I was thrown into a cell. 
and appeared in court next day to find I've been charged with threatening behaviour. The important thing is it was the back of my head that got smashed in, not the front, not the shoulders, the back of my head. So literally I threatened a policeman with the back of my head. Uh, and that, that's what happened to me. And we found out that that was just two days after Thatcher instructed the police to get to. And that, mm. I don't know if you can see it, that's the stickers I was wearing still covered wow. in my blood. My, I had to burn my clothes. Uh, and that was dished out throughout the strike. All grief that I'll go on to in one minute uh, was the pinnacle of that. But we had 11,000 pickets arrested. 11,000. That's bigger than the population of most of our villages. Uh, 7,000 of us were injured, and that's injuries that needed treatment, either hospitalization or doctors. 2,000 of us were sacked and two were actually murdered on the picket line. So that's the the national statistics. And as I say, we couldn't move because of this ring of steel that that surrounded us. But on June the 18th, all of a sudden, we were being escorted uh, into Orgreave. The police actually created a parking area for pickets to park. Now that raised alarm bells straight away. And what did miners see when they got there? No less than 6,000 police wow. waiting, just by accident. Wasn't supposed to, you know, they were just out for a stroll. It was a hot sunny day, I suppose. And with them they had police dogs and mounted cavalry. Lying in wait uh, to surround us, uh, there was it was a very peaceful picket. What we would do uh, on every picket line is when scab lorries or scab miners would come in, there'd be a bit of a surge. The police would hold you back or batter you back, and then it was over. People were dispersing. You can see on this photo, uh, lads without without shirts, lads in shorts, lads in t-shirts, simple trainers. And these police were armed with long shields, long batons, uh, snarling dogs. And when, and all of a sudden there was a cavalry charge. Uh, And willy-nilly, indiscriminately, Miners, I mean, the picket had finished. People were walking back to the buses and the cars. These police attacked and attacked with a vengeance, lashing out at anybody, men, women, bystanders, uh, anything. Uh, And uh, here we come to where the BBC, our state broadcaster, supposedly impartial, uh, put out on its main news bulletin at six o'clock that the police had defended themselves against rioting miners. Mm. As I say, the police were dressed in riot gear. You can see what uh, our brothers were, were wearing. Uh, and it was a rout. 95 were arrested 
most of them uh, were charged with riot, which carried a life, a potential life imprisonment, potentially going to jail for life for simply wanting to defend your job. And the BBC put up this and said, miners built barricades from which to attack the police. That's true. But you don't build barricades to attack, you build barricades to defend. Right. And so they, they cleverly reversed the footage to show young lads fighting back and the police responding. Uh, ten years later, they've never apologised. They said it was a simple mistake. A mm. simple mistake that tarnished us nationally as violent rioting thugs uh, and helped un under undermine any solidarity uh, we might get. And every day it was about miners' violence, never mind about these police attacks. And that's what happened almost every day. We had cavalry charges in tiny mining villages indiscriminate kicking in of doors and people being dragged out and arrested. And that's what we faced for most uh, of that year. And as I say, all grieve is the pinnacle. I'm now involved in a campaign, a marvellous campaign, called the All Grieve Truth and Justice Campaign. We campaign for a public inquiry into that one day and what happened um, and what to orders the police were given because you don't get 6,000 police waiting in a field for nothing and uh, what we hope to do is expose what happened at Orgreave because as I say that was the most visible most reported thing as a way of shining a light on everything that happened during that year and again it was well orchestrated uh, we've had access to some of the police reports of that day, uh, but the orders um, have been mysteriously lost. And uh, as I say, 95 of our comrades were facing life imprisonment. Some of them were put in jail on remand, put in jail, not, not in open prisons, but in jail, we're in maximum security jails with rapists, with murderers, etc., uh, etc. Et Those that were arrested were denied any medical treatment. Some had broken arms. Some had serious concussion. Many were bleeding. And uh, the fellow uh, arrestees had to bandage them up with T-shirts, etc., etc. That's what happened that one fateful day. Well, that was happening all the way through. Wow. And and so, you know, the you mentioned that that not one not one pit is, is operating today in the UK. What was the ultimate resolution of the strike? Did all did all the were all the mines closed immediately or was it kind of uh, was it more gradual than that? It was a salami tactic. What happened was uh, towards the end of the strike, 
uh, there was a massive drive to get people to scab. And, pe you know, a lot of people had suffered. You know, they'd literally been starved for a whole year. Uh, and, uh, you know, we started having this uh, uh, move back to work. And I think it could have been contained. But uh, certain areas that have no record of scabbing, their leaderships panicked and uh, a special delegate conference <coughs> was, was called uh, and it was narrowly accepted that the strike would be called off without an agreement uh, and that we would march back to work with dignity, which is what we did. So literally the strike collapsed because of this onslaught and hunger. You know, people, uh, uh, a union comrade of mine said early on in the strike, he was talking to open minds amongst his fellow miners uh, who were supporting the strike. At the end of the strike, he was talking to empty bellies, and that's mm. what carried the day. So I think uh, it was uh, a tragedy to call it off. And evidence now shows that on a number of occasions, we were in days of winning, that the coal stocks had diminished so rapidly, uh, the solidarity action that wasn't moving coal was really starting to bite. And I think if we could have kept it just for two or three, perhaps a month longer, we could have won. And the whole course of British uh, history, the whole course of the decimation uh, of our industry and, and manufacturing industry throughout Britain could have been halted and the onslaught of neoliberalism that we've got now could have been stopped. But, you know, that's speculation. Uh, and slowly but surely, every pit was closed. They, they, they'd actually rigged the market. We used to supply cheap coal our energy was all nationalised. We, uh, the country, owned electricity generation, electricity distribution. It owned oil. It owned uh, British petroleum. Uh, it owned gas, British gas, uh, and uh, slowly, although uh, our market was rigged, so uh, it made it cheaper for for them to buy imported coal and slowly but surely pits were deemed that had never been un uneconomic before were deemed uneconomic and mm. closed one by one and the last uh, what we call a deep mine in britain closed in 2015. Uh, i was there on behalf of our all grief campaign it was an awful day because we knew that was the end and now mm. Our communities are devastated. You know, they've not just lost the mine, but they've lost their livelihood, they've lost a lot of their services, uh, and the battle has been to keep those communities together. Right. And I'm proud to say a lot of the mining communities, you know, still stand tall and are proud of what we do. Every year on the second Saturday in July, we have what's known as the Durham Miners Gala. 
it's not just about miners, it attracts the whole of the trade union movement. And this year, there were a quarter of a million people on that march and participating in the gala. So, you know, the memories linger on, the spirit lingers on. Uh, and I always say, Thatcher's dead, but we're still here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell I, yeah. I got to say, that that was just very inspiring the the courage the bravery uh the sacrifices that so many of y'all made for your fellow workers uh facing off against the entirety of of the media the government the police it's uh and in this one of the saddest things is is how much it resonates with so many of the the other labor struggles that we, you know, that we've learned about in our country and in countries across the globe, uh, I think there's a lot of lessons we can take from that. But I just want to say thank you for sharing your deeply personal testimony, mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm glad that that pig cop didn't get you worse than he did. Well, we uh, we still fight for justice. I. I tried via a freedom of information request to uh, to to get the details of my arrest and, and conviction so I could get it overturned. I say I was framed in court. I ended up with two criminal records, threatening behaviour, and they resurrected a law that originates from the 1600s called watching and besetting, which actually means just looking at people. So I'm remarkable that I can threaten a policeman and look at him with the back of my head. Now, knowing our movement, we need eyes in the back of our head at times. <laughs> that, that, that's damn ridiculous. But I, on my behalf, the NUM took out private prosecutions against two chief constables and the constable that had attacked me, uh, which is why I had to be framed to, to defeat that. Uh, I recently uh, sent this freedom of information request to Derbyshire Police, wanting records, and guess what came back? There's no record of my arrest. No record. They even sent me my £10 back that you have to pay for that. Couldn't find it. We sued three people, private prosecutions. I've got two criminal records that show up on all my criminal records checks. And here's the thing, I cannot even, if I wanted to, come and visit and show solidarity to those brave comrades in Alabama because a few years ago I wanted to visit my partners, relatives and friends in the US and I was denied a visa for those two criminal records of which we cannot find. There is no evidence of, but mysteriously they crop up. So I'm labelled a violent thug at the age of 70. I still carry two criminal records that impact on me today. And I'm not the only one. There's thousands of us like that. And people who have been lucky enough, one of my comrades who was arrested at Orgreave actually got his, uh, they've kept the papers from that, he actually got his arrest record. And it's so redacted... (laughs) There's only his name visible. Of course. So, yeah. Wow. And, and those, those 95 that were arrested had to wait over a year to get to trial. Mm. 
Imagine that. You're waiting a year to know whether you're going to be sent down for life. And when the trial eventually collapsed after 40 days, when it was found that the police had fabricated evidence, that they all wrote identical statements. So we've had policemen come forward and say they were sat down in offices by mysterious people in suits who were special branch who told them what they got to write. Uh, in, uh, I say in my case, we can't even find any, any details. So that's what we're up against. Some of the files relating to the strike have been locked away in buy gold until 2066. <laughs> now I'll be 114 then. So I've started a healthy eating regime because <laughs> I want to find out what happened to me. Right, outlast right. those bastards. Yeah. And now we spend, I spend a lot of my time campaigning, speaking at the sort of meetings uh, you talk about. If I can give a plug, if you put all grief, truth, and justice campaign, uh, you'll come up with a website, our Twitter account, uh, and our Facebook account. We're a very, very, to say there's only a handful of us, we're a very, very successful campaign. And we're keeping that, that flame alive, talking to the today's trade unionists about our message and explaining how this country's in the mess that it's in because our strike was defeated. And can I say while I'm on, solidarity yeah. to my brothers and sisters in Alabama. I wish I could be there with you. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's why I got in touch with yourselves. I didn't just want to send a message to the National Union. I wanted it to get to the people on the front line. And so thank and we you did, for watching. When you sent that, we did send screenshots to folks that we know uh, that are in the union, and so we we were able to tell them, and and we certainly appreciated that. Before before you go, though, I I am interested in in you know I, I mentioned this earlier, and I did want to circle back to it before we let you go. Coming up to you know the present day, there's a there's a uh, there's it, it's not they're they're not striking right now, um, but there's a dispute that has that's culminated in several strikes and, and potentially they'll strike again, the RMT, uh, which is the rail union in the UK and watching the media coverage over there, you know, to the extent that I, that I can and that I have, it's, uh, it almost make almost, almost makes me thankful for the media that we've got over here, uh, because <laughs> it's crazy. It's really really wild and, and you know i think probably the the problem here is mostly that the media will just ignore working people um but but over there it just seems like there's an onslaught just an onslaught of uh coverage against the rmt so i, I i'm wondering what it is like watching uh watching this as uh you know as a former miner as somebody involved in those strikes if it's giving you deja vu Oh, not just deja vu, but inspiration. Uh, and what's happened is, I don't know if you've seen Mick Lynch, the secretary of the RMT, has actually tore a strip and answered perfectly calmly uh, all the media slurs, so much so that he's hardly getting any, any coverage now. What they're trying to do is demonise again all strikers. We're now told... 
despite the fact we've got 13% inflation and nobody's had a pay rise for 12 years, we're now told that it's wages that are causing inflation. And we've got the RMT, we've got the train drivers as left out on strike today. We've got strikes on buses. We've got a strike where even nurses uh, are starting to ballot. And can I say, going back to my union, we had a fantastic history of solidarity. I can't remember how many days I've been on strike in support of other unions, in particularly nurses, because they were the people who bandaged us up and mended us when we'd had an injury. So solidarity to everybody worldwide that's fighting back. In Britain, they're calling it the summer of discontent, and long may it continue. This is a chance to fight back. Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. Uh, John Dunn, uh, you've got the Orgrave or, or grieve truth and justice campaign we've dropped that in the chat we'll put it in our uh in, in the notes for the podcast i really appreciate you coming on brother this has been no it's fantastic. great it's been a privilege and thank you it's people like you that make sure messages like ours make sure that the alabama strikers that their message gets out because the national media will, will will never do it so solidarity all power to your elbow and hope you grow and grow. I'll do everything. There's some of my colleagues in the UK watching this, so uh, we'll spread the word. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, brother. It's I appreciate it. Truly an honor. We, yep. we Solidarity. You too, right. brother. And folks, yeah, that's, I mean, that's as good a place to end it as any. Uh, that's going to be, flag that for the best of, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that just uh, just an amazing story and, and to hear it from you know a committed union brother who was there mm -hmm. uh and who has the has the scars to prove it literally yeah um and, and you know the parallels with the issues here in alabama the issues across the country um one thing that that i made a note of that really resonated with me was about the need for long-term thinking because when they put that bonuses out the bonuses out for coal and they are chasing the bonus, therefore mm -hmm. increasing the coal reserves, mm -hmm. which capital is building up in preparation for such a strike and to completely bust the union and to close the pits. You know, and I, I think about that and how much that's a factor in our lives and, and how often uh, we can fall prey to short-term thinking without the long-term view in mind. We've got to keep our eyes on the prize and think down the road uh, because rest assured the folks on the other side of the table are doing that. Absolutely. Uh, and that, that really that resonated. And, of course, the creation uh, of the, the police forces reminds me that the Huntsville, Alabama riot police were created to bust up striking rubber workers uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and this same riot police was then deployed upon our sisters and brothers in the courthouse square in June of 2020 who were protesting police brutality. You know, the, the sheer irony of it, you're protesting police brutality and you're getting met with police brutality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just to see how these themes re uh, reappear throughout history, across cultures. Um, yeah, I just, uh, it was it was truly an honor and a pleasure to have Mr. Dunn on the, on the program. Uh, great stuff. Thanks, Jacob, for 
for making that happen and thanks again to John for, for being on here really love it Yep, and I just dropped. Uh, I mentioned that I I listened to a talk that he gave to a school in London in 2012, ten years ago. Uh, I listened to that in preparation for this, and I just dropped that into the chat if if anybody wants to go check it out. So yeah, definitely um, bookmark that. Uh, take a look at the Truth and Justice Commission uh, committee that they have. The campaign uh, they even have merch out there. You can buy some merch. Yeah, buy a hat. Yeah. Rep the hat. I think I'm gonna get me a t-shirt and a hat. Um, I may have to do that myself. Yeah. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us today. Uh, the website is tvlr.fm. You can get our hats, donate to the show, help us stay on the air. Uh, otherwise, folks, we are going to see you next week. Bye, y'all.